right, everybody. Uh, welcome to the CNS Journal podcast. This is the June 2022 edition. Uh, today, a little bit of a special guest with uh, Justin Moore from uh, my same institution that will be talking about his paper on safety and efficacy of off-label use of pipeline embolization device. And this is based off of the 2018 FDA improved indications for intracranial aneurysms. And so we'll review the single center retrospective study. And uh, as a guest, we have Dr. Peter Kahn from uh, UTMB, uh, who's um, we're very lucky to have him, very expert uh, in this subject. And then uh, we also are introducing our CNS fellow, uh, Hayden Hoffman. Um, and so that'll be the group. So uh, we'll start off by introductions. And uh, Justin, would you like to introduce yourself to the group? Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Raf, and thanks for inviting me here. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk about uh, this sort of paper with such uh, esteemed colleagues, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm a cerebrovascular surgeon, skull-based surgeon at uh, BIDMC in Boston and a uh, faculty with uh, Harvard Medical School. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I do a lot of clinical work and I also like the research side of things like many of us. Excellent. Thank you. And then again, uh, we'll have Peter introduce himself. Hi, I'm uh, Peter Kahn. I'm a cerebrovascular neurosurgeon uh, from Texas, from uh, UTMB, and I have a special interest in flow diversion. And uh, uh, fortunate to know everyone on the uh, on the call for a long time already. Excellent. And then, uh, uh, last but not least, uh, Hayden. Hi, everyone. My name is Hayden. I'm a sixth year neurosurgery resident at SUNY Upstate, interested in cerebrovascular and endovascular neurosurgery. Great. Again, excellent uh, choice today for discussion. So, uh, Justin, go ahead and give us the brief introduction and uh, tell us a little bit about this paper and, you know, some of the results, et cetera. Sure. So basically the paper looks at a pipeline, uh, which is a type of flow diverter for, for those uh, maybe not in vascular uh, all the time, uh, which is a, a type of uh, device that we use to treat aneurysms. It's a relatively new device. It's only been around for the last decade, but it's got a lot of traction uh, because it works so well. And I, I suspect we're all fans of it here. Um, and really the sort of inspiration for the paper is, it has certain indications that were you know, uh, identified in the original trials. But the question is, how far can we push the technology? We've all seen uh, aneurysms that are very difficult to treat. And you know, we sort of toss in you know, open surgery, clipping versus stent coiling versus coiling alone. And now flow diverters are in the mix. And so the question is, you know, do the flow diverters actually, are they useful off-label? So it's about expanding the indications. And what we've found is, is at our institution is we've actually used it off-label quite a lot. And I suspect, you know, I suspect Peter has as well. And the, uh, and the question really comes down to, you know, is it safe to use off-label? Should we be doing it more? Should the indications actually expand? And, you know, what is best practice in treating some of these difficult aneurysms? So I think the paper aims to get at that. And so what essentially it, it, we looked at is a cohort, we looked at our, we have a, a large cohort of, of flow diverter treated aneurysms, you know, in the order of sort of over 400. And we looked at uh, the, we basically divided the cohort up into two groups. Those that were, so, uh, those that were treated 
on label according to the 2018 indication, which is the most recent update of the label. So there is a previous, uh, the, you know, there was previous label which was updated in 2018. We actually looked at the, the the latest one, and then we so we had one group of patients who actually were you know on label, and so this is a you know a straight chip shot basically, and then we looked at all the patients that that were off label. So these are patients that you know don't typically come. Uh, under the the standard characteristics of a patient getting a flow diverter, but you know, in in the case, we thought this was the best option. So we wanted to see how these patients went, and so we had it, it, probably not not unexpectedly, we had 321 patients in the on label group, and then we had 171 in the off label group. And basically, we wanted to do a comparison to see, you know, how do these patients go? Is it is it reasonable to be doing these? Uh, our gut instinct was it was, but also, you know, what are the issues with it? And how can we mitigate that? So it was also investigating, because if you're going to expand their indications, uh, then you need to sort of know, you know, what are the problems with it? So you can have a, a, a meaningful conversation with the patient about the pros and cons, you know, of this option. And so we did that. Uh, and, you know, it actually provided quite, a, 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 you know, a lot of insights. And, Perhaps most importantly, it actually works very well. We didn't find it's quite as effective as the on-label, but it's very close. It's upwards around the 80% mark, which, you know, was great. So that gives us, a, you know, if people want to use it for off-label indications, as we described in the paper, then, you know, this gives you, you know, good evidence to, to, to go forward with that because it actually did work in our hands very well. However, it wasn't all, um, it all wasn't all sunny days. Uh, so not only did it, not work quite as well, although, you know, pretty well, it did have, there was some extra complications, particularly, you know, surrounding things like using it in ruptured aneurysms. Uh, and you can see the, uh, you can see the mix coming up when we talk about using an ruptured aneurysm, you have to put patients on dual antiplatelets, there's a bit of a tension there. And so what to do about that? And, and how do those patients go? And what are the risks to consider if you get a patient, if you think, I really want to put a flow diverter in here, but you know, it, it, you know, it, it's off label. You know, should I be doing this? And and how to have a chat with your um with the family or the or the patient about that. So that was sort of like that's sort of the core. Um, some of the some of the questions I'm sure we'll get to. We'll sort of dig into some of those results, but that's essentially why we did it. Excellent. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Justin. So uh, we'll kick it off to uh, Peter to ask any questions. Sure. Uh, really fantastic study, Justin. I, I just wanted to kind of follow up with where you left off about the rupture. I think one of the big group is, is the rupture group. So uh, I just want to see you and Rafi, like what, what are your, what is your protocol to minimize the problem that comes to the antiplatelet therapy? Because obviously like we're treating the thromboembolic issues for not using it to kind of issues with hemorrhage and hemorrhagic issues. So, so for example, you know, when and do you place EVD up front and, and when do you do the loading or how do you load? Do you do oral load? Do you do intravenous load in the procedure? And, and, uh, and, uh, and I think also um, uh, Hayden, I think mentioned this question about kind of like the neuro uh, coded device or, or, or device or service modification. So I think it's, uh, it's a bit of a kind of a greater question. I think we want to hear about you know like a protocol and, and minimizing complication and also your thoughts about the newer devices in terms gotcha. of 
Well, I think you you know you've you've really zoned in on on one of the big controversies, right, and issues that we face as cerebrovascular neurosurgeons, and particularly using the shield. And so, uh, in our practice, so there's a few components. If we uh, believe, so if we get a ruptured, uh, and we you know image, and it looks like it would be good for flow diverter. We're uh, quite aggressive with EVD drainage. So that's the first thing uh, because we want to have it in before we put anyone on uh, dual antiplatelets. So if there's any, you know, any suspicion of that, uh, then, then the EVD goes in early because, you know, it's, it's, it's much more difficult and risky if it goes in later. So we have a low threshold for that. We don't wait and see if it looks like, yeah, we're a bit plump. There's a lot of blood in there. It's a Fisher 4. We, we, we will put it in. Um, then the, the second the second question about you know how we treat them. So we tend to use Brolinta or uh, Ticagrelol. Uh, and the reason why we do that, so we load with 180 milligrams and we basically load as soon as we think this is gonna need a, a flow diverter. Ideally, you know, by the time you sort of get everything ready, it's been going for, you know, half an hour, an hour, the longer the better, basically. So we get it in early up front. Uh, if the patient's unconscious, we deliver it through NGT. Uh, and if the patient, you know, is, is otherwise okay, then, you know, then we just do it orally as sort of standard. Uh, the reason why we use the Berlinta is in our, in our uh, cohort, and you can see this in the paper as well, we had about only 56% of patients actually respond as Plavix. So at least in, in, in the group of patients we're treating, if we just went with Plavix, there's going to be a lot of non-responders. And so that's why we've, we've sort of jumped for Berlinta as our first line intervention. And, and so once we're... To, sorry, sure. go ahead. Uh, just to clear for the group, you also loaded aspirin too, right? Just to clear for the group, you loaded both aspirin and, and Berlinta. Yes, they all get aspirin for sure. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and, and then following on from uh, once, they're, once they've been loaded, then we go on for Berlinta, we do the 90 milligrams BD, and then we, we have the aspirin, the, the uh, uh, 364 uh, milligrams, and we generally carry that on for at least three months. Uh, and then uh, if all's well, we try and wean off the, um, the Berlinta and keep going with the aspirin, which I think is pretty, pretty common and pretty standard. Um, the other thing I would say about the using Berlinta is it has a relatively fast offset. Um, and so if you do need to put a shunt in or something like that, you know, it gives you a, an option there to, you know, to sort of hold for 24 hours, put the shunt in and then start it again, if, if that's necessary, uh, which is a bit quicker than um, Plavix. So that's another, you know, another possible benefit of, of using um, uh, Berlinta. Um, with the second part to the question about the pipeline shield, so I have to say up front uh, that we did not have any patients in this cohort. We excluded shield patients. So this is just the, the flex and, 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 and previous versions. I have to say now we like we basically only use shield. And so, you know, I think this is, you know, it's an exciting development. Um, the, the issue, of course, is that, you know, they still recommend using dual antiplatelets. And so it's one of those things that even in a rupture at the moment, we tend to use dual antiplatelets and, you know, hope for the best. Uh, if we can get, if data comes out saying it's safe to avoid that, then obviously in a rupture case, that would be great. But I don't think that data is available yet. So, you know, we tend to, we, 
we're, we're sticking on label basically in terms of the, the recommended treatment with shield. But I think there's a lot of opportunities for that. And I think over time there'll, there'll be enough cases that come out, you know, for, for people that really couldn't be dual and, you know, treated with dual antiplatelets that, you know, will get a sense of how safe it actually is. I think, Justin, I think the interesting thing is that we all kind of have that thought. Uh, when I recently looked at the literature for that, I, I think it's interesting because, for example, whether that be pipeline with the shoe technology or the FedEx, these device service modification, if you look at the in vitro data in the flow loop, you know, it, it's certainly less thrombogenic than the, than the previous surgeon devices. But when you look at the larger clinical studies, for example, for the shield, you look at the, the shield study or the PFLEX studies from, from Europe, um, interestingly, that that you know that the occlusion rate and the thrombolic rate is not that different than the than the flex on on donut therapy. So so this is one thing. It doesn't seem like they're you know even though in in in, in vitro cases it sounds great, but in clinical studies that these kind of prospective adjudicated studies that that the thrombolic risk is still there about three percent. You know, so I think there is there are a few studies from from Europe that 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 that. And then in terms of the single antiplatelet therapy issue. Uh, we don't have the P48 and P64 uh, in, in the U.S., but if you look at, there are a lot of studies, kind of smaller studies, smaller case series from Europe. If you look at the issue of single antiplatelet therapy, and it shows that thrombolic risk is actually quite high when you just use one agent. In fact, I think for the flex, there's one Australian study from Manning, you know, that yes. they have like a 7%, you know, risk of thrombolic complication, you know, from, from single, from aspirin therapy alone. So I think, I think, like you say, if we have to do it, it's probably theoretically better, but I think the data certainly to this point in my mind have not, have not borne out yet. So I think, you know, kind of what, what you do is like, I, I, mean, I think it's perfectly like the, like the, like the standard of care today is used to antiplatelet therapy, even in rupture cases. Rafi, what do you, what do you think? No, I agree with you, but good thing is that I kind of defer more of this work to like Dr. Ogilvy and, and Justin, honestly. Um, I, I kind of focus more of my work on tumors. And so I, at the end of the day, I, I agree with what we found in the paper, but I don't really do any of this uh, on my own practice. I would just make a point too that um, the uh, the single uh, the, the single agent studies, especially that one from Australia, that was also drawn from like they used the databases that covered the whole country, and so they only got like a handful of patients. And so you can see that even in in that circumstance, it's pretty rare. There's very few people that are going, you know, and, and you know, chanting that at the moment. Yeah. So I think it's a it's it's sort of a, a very interesting area, and I'm sure it's going to develop. But uh, you know, at the moment, I think that. The, 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 our overall feeling, the safest way is to, to still go dual antiplatelets at the yeah, moment. I think mean, that's why it's great about these podcasts. It's more of like a discussion kind of forum. And I, and I think kind of in, in, from an experience standpoint, I think the, the dual antiplatelet therapy, if we do it, safely like the way the way you you do it early evd you know kind of close to the procedure kind of loading right the iv oral i i, I mean i think is 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 quite safe you know right um i mean it's really hard for us to imagine not using that and when you're putting something high metal coverage in the, in the patient so just as an interesting discussion for sure hayden you have you have any questions you want to you want to bring up yeah, so uh, thanks. I, I just want to congratulate Dr. Moore, um, the rest of the authors on this. It's a really outstanding study, and I think it highlights, um, you know, a subset of aneurysms uh, that are often very difficult to treat, and oftentimes there's no good uh, open surgical option or, or coiling option. So I think this is a really important study, um, which is why I selected it. Um, one of the... Um, 
One of the interesting things I noted was that the thromboembolic complications were uh, occurring in a more delayed fashion in the off-label group. I think it was a median of about 55 days post-op versus um, like day zero, basically immediately after in the on-label group. So um, I was wondering if, if you thought that these um, off-label aneurysms might merit a different follow-up or a different um, antiplatelet, dual antiplatelet duration. I know you were doing three months um, uh, typically for dual antiplatelets. So I was just wondering how, how that has changed your practice at all, if it has. Yeah, that's, that's a great question and, and, and a nice insight from the, from the, from the paper. Um, so I'm glad you brought it up. Look, you know, I, we, so to answer, firstly, yes, we have tra changed our practice. We actually, with off-label uh, aneurysms, we often keep it going for six months. Uh, the uh, the uh, dual antiplatelets rather than three months, so that's something to to note. And the the way the reason why we uh, have done that is, you know, we found you know the data that we had these delayed uh, uh, problems, and what we feel is a lot of the off label we're dealing with smaller vessels. So a lot of the, you know, extending out, or they already have something in there, a stent or, or another flow diverter or something like that. So you're narrowing the vessel further. And so what our theory is, is the further you get out and the smaller the diameter of the, the vessel, you're having slower blood flow. And part of the problem we think is that once you slow down the blood flow, it's less forgiving. If there's any metal there, when the blood's moving a lot slower than say through the ICA, then it can clot off. So we think that part of it is it, it, it's just like, like it's very, it's not forgiving, and you really have to have the whole uh, device endothelialized before you can safely come off. And whereas, you know, you get the you get the feeling that even though most devices, you know, get there in forty days or whatever, in the ICA you may have a few little holes, but the blood's rushing past, so nothing's you know nothing's adhering to the to the to the metal and causing the clot. Whereas if you've got a much slower velocity, then if you've got those same holes, then then you know you, you get a problem. So I think. It, it, we have changed the practice to actually extend, especially when the off-label is because it's in a smaller vessel, like, you know, the, the A2s or, you know, the P3s, those sort of things. Uh, and, you know, we've found that that's, we're still collecting data. That will be a paper for probably a few years' time. But we feel that there is less issues. So it, it's something that we've changed. And, you know, I, I, I encourage others who are particularly going for the smaller caliber vessels to have a think about that. It may, it may be helpful. And I assume you're doing a, a catheter angiogram at, at six months and then and then based on that you decide or uh, no. Uh, so so what we do is we do an MRA at six months and have a look. The the reason is we have a, a previous publication that that we found, um, I think it's in neurosurgery too. It we looked at all our, our uh, flow diverters and we realized that it's sort of a lot of them aren't the, the aneurysms are patterned still at six months. Mm -hmm. And we realized that we weren't doing anything. All we do is get one at six months and then get another angiogram at a year. And, and so what we've done is to try and minimize how many angiograms the patients get. We've just shifted to one year. So we get the MRA at six months just to, to check. And usually it's fine. Patient's fine. But then the, the one year one is the critical one to assess. You know, it'd be nice to get a six, six month one just to look, but you know, angiograms, you know, even though they're very safe, they're not a hundred percent safe. And so we try and minimize, minimize that. So we don't, we don't get one at six months. We do get one at one year. Peter, is that something you do as well? Yeah, I, like I totally agree. And if you look at all the studies, they, they, they define success or failure at, at really at one year anyway. So if you have a six month, if it's 
open, you're going to say, well, you know, don't, don't worry too much. We'll do another one. I guess the only nice thing is if it's close, you may, you may, you may, you know, but I think the MR is, is, is like, it's very good. I think the MR serves that purpose, you know, for sure. Well, it's, it's, a, it's control angiogram is, is it, I mean, it's good. It, it's sort of interesting too, because we, before we looked at ours, like this maybe six, seven years ago, we did a survey. You may even uh, filled it in for us, Peter. But we, we of uh, this uh, CV section, we uh, surveyed for their follow-ups because there was no routine stuff. And it was, it was unbelievable, the variety. Like as oh, many yeah. hospitals, there was a different follow-up. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that it's slowly converging, but, but it definitely takes time. And which is understandable. You got to get experience, right? Yeah, I, I think I think this makes perfect sense. When we when we start technology, you want to check early. I remember when we first started doing pipelines, you used to check even on day one and a one month, you know. But now, like you say, we know that you don't even, you know, think about your treatment to at least one year. So, you know, so probably there's no no point subject someone to an invasive procedure before then, especially when you have good alternatives to to assess the situation. Absolutely, totally agree. Yeah, yeah, it's just maybe another question for you. So we're talking about different kind of off-label uh, cases. You know, rupture is one group. Uh, then there are other groups like types of aneurysms and locations. So how about type of aneurysms in terms of bifurcation aneurysms? What, you know, what kind of bifurcation aneurysms would you clip, you know, versus stent coiling versus flow diversion? I guess, I guess maybe what kind of bifurcation aneurysms would you go to flow diversion? Or is that like yeah. the last resort for, for that? So we're, we're still a pretty, uh, pretty big clipping practice. So we actually, about 30% of our cases, we still clip. Um, and so a lot, so I would say posterior circulation bifurcation, we generally would pipeline or stent coil depending on the, the anatomy. Of, uh, and I mean, there, of course, we all, you know, it's patient specific, aneurysm specific, but in general, um, you know, the ones that we tend to clip, uh, we definitely do a lot of MCAs still. We find that clip reconstruction will, uh, often gives us a superior result to what we think we can achieve with endovascular and also ACOMs. We clip a reasonable number of ACOMs. I would say uh, it's not quite as much as the MCAs, but it, it's up there because you know if you you need the right uh, this right sort of morphology. And you know even though we we sort of routinely cover branches with pipelines, I'm sure we've you know you all everyone has that case where they did it and they didn't get away with it. You know it might only be you know one in you know a hundred one in two hundred cases, but there's just that you know that occasional one that for some reason the flow dynamics you know you lose the branch and it's and it's you know even if the patient does all right, it's very disappointing, right? So so we we do we do tend to use clipping a lot but i would say that anything in the posterior fossa we generally would be looking for an endovascular um, solution there and that's often pipeline um, or or stent coiling depending on the circumstances of the case uh, mcas it's more often clipping and occasionally a pipeline or or stent coiling depending on on the anatomy or if the patient's been treated with clipping already which is rare, but then there's some residual or a second aneurysm develops because, you know, some of the patients we've been tracking in our practice for 25, 30 years. And so, you know, they, they actually develop new aneurysms, which can be very close to where the clip was. And you just, you know, you think there's going to be a lot of scar tissue and difficulty getting it. So in those patients, we tend to go again, a bit more towards the endovascular, um, but generally pretty clip happy there. 
so I guess, Justin, I guess uh, anterior circulation, you know, ACOM, MCA, mainly clumping. In posterior circulation, do you prefer stand coiling and bifurcation aneurysm before flow aversion? So in, in I, I would say it's a little bit on the on the on the specifics of the case. I would actually say if it's an elective, we often do flow diverter. Oh, okay. We found that that works pretty well. If it's a rupture because of the dual antiplatelets, um, then we're more of a stent coil, um, you know, procedure. So, but we've we've put a lot of we we you know, especially if they're sort of you know you think you can get the angles right, um, we've put a lot of flow diverters from the from the basilar into the P1. And, sure. you know, we haven't had too many problems with that. I mean, you know, it's, again, it's not risk-free, but we tend to do that quite frequently. We haven't had a huge issue. Great. Very nice. Uh, any last questions, Hayden, on your end? Yeah, that, that discussion actually kind of led into um, my last question, which uh, has to do with one of, the, one of the limitations of endovascular therapy, which is recurrence. And, um, a lot of the, the off-label um, treatments were uh, retreatments. Um, so I was wondering if, if you anticipate more upfront use of flow diversion for some of these off-label aneurysms based on the, the positive results of this study? Yeah, thanks for that. That's a great question. Um, I, I would, you know, I think it's one of those things, again, you know, because we, we have quite a, you know, a mature practice uh, with some of my, uh, my, my colleagues, um, we, we, you know, some of these patients were treated 25 years ago. They didn't have any of the endovascular equipment. So that's one reason why we see, you know, a decent number of retreatments. And, you know, I think it's, you know, you've got the adoption curve or the innovation curve. It's, you know, sort of that S shape. And I think what we find is that when we have a really difficult aneurysm, because they're already being treated, you know, you're looking for the options and you're like, you don't want to clip because it was already clipped or there's already a stent coil in there. And so even though the flow diverter is off label, it's still the best option for that. And so you use it. And then, you know, with the results of this study, I think it sort of brings us to being more confident that we could use it up front, you know, in the same situation, we don't have to have, well, it's this type of aneurysm, but the clip and then make clipping difficult. So we wouldn't clip it. Um, and so we'll use a flow diverter, but it, you know, if it didn't have the clip on and it was a de novo, then we would clip it. Well, now we might switch to, to and we've seen this in our practice, we start to, to experiment and say, well, I think a flow diverter would actually do well here. And so I think it does shift us forward. And so I think the, the positive results of the paper, certainly shifting our practice, it's a sort of you know, it's, it's a slow movement, but it gives you confidence that if you've got a really good result in, in spite of the, you know, difficult circumstances of a retreat, uh, then you're going to get hopefully great result when you have a de novo aneurysm. So I think it gives you the confidence to move into those, those off-label areas and say, you know, you can tell the patient, look, we've got great, we've got great results here. So this is an option. And, uh, and, you know, if it, if it is appropriate, then you can do it. Well, well thank you so much. And My pleasure. Yeah, and I, and I think that uh, kind of brings us to our time. So, you know, I just want to thank you again, Justin, for, you know, presenting the topic and awesome paper. And of course, Peter and Hayden for your questions and insight. Uh, I think this is very, very, very useful. And so I just want to remind the listeners that uh, this is CME activity and that the uh, Journal Club podcast or the CME is complimentary to all CNS uh, members and is worth 1.5 uh, credits. So again, thank you everybody. And uh, we'll obviously see you next month.